Hello and welcome to this episode of TASME Time Talks in Medical Education. I'm Oliver, a IMT trainee and uh, based in London and one of the um, TASME Time podcast team. Um, and I'm Rob, a GP trainee based in Lincolnshire and I'm another member of the podcast team. We're back again. How are you, Rob? Having a good week? Yeah, really good week. Um, thank you. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm glad it's Wednesday and that we are headed into the second half of the week. Uh, but um, yeah, I'm quite excited for tonight's episode. Um, so really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about simulation because it's something I haven't done for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. I think um, we are in for a treat. Um, today we're joined um, by Dr Libby Thomas, who is an emergency medicine consultant and senior clinical lecturer um, based in London, um, as we discuss all things simulation in medical education. Hi Libby and uh, welcome to TASME Time. Hello, thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and telling us a bit about your career to date? Yeah, of course. Um, so I am a consultant in emergency medicine now, but I very much have what I would call a portfolio career, which I've sort of built up and developed over the last 20 years since I left medical school. Um, I always left medical school knowing I liked working with patients, um, but I knew I didn't want to be a full-time clinician forever. I wasn't quite sure what direction that would take me in. So I did training in emergency medicine, um, which I absolutely passionate about and I love um, partly for the medicine, but also the fact it's a continuous teaching journey. You know, you're always teaching the juniors, the nurses, everybody's coming through and it's really interprofessional as well. So I sort of kind of built up my educational base through that sort of work in EM. Uh, and then I sort of started to think about how I could get into it a little bit more down the line. And I was very lucky. It was opportunistic, really. But I signed up to a fellowship in simulation back in 2009. Um, much to my despair at the time, I was also enrolled onto a master's in clinical education, which was like the worst idea in the world to me. I was not a social scientist. Um, and it was based at the Institute of Education up in um, Russell Square near where the London Deanery was. And it was really scary. And we were given great big, long social science papers to read by weird named people like Vygotsky. Um, and it was like, what is this all about? But we were really lucky. It was really early on in the sort of professionalization of medical education. Um, so it was a really diverse group of people on that course, including a lot of people who are sort of PGDMEs and much more senior than I was, who are sort of coming back to try and learn how to get into medical education from an academic perspective. Um, and gradually over the two years of doing that online, not online in person, it was great. We went every um, Monday evening up to Russell Square for these lectures and conversations. I actually sort of fell in love with med ed and with social science and Vygotsky's become one of my, I'm one of his greatest fans, I would say, you know, and used him heavily in my work as it's gone forwards. So that was really exciting. At the same time, simulation was really coming to a fore. It wasn't something that was hugely used in the full what I would call full patient simulation modality so with the high fidelity mannequins that are all singing and all dancing obviously we've been doing simulation for millennia you know that's how people learn how to deliver babies was through a, 
a rag doll and a pelvis as the midwife taught their daughter, you know, in the sort of rural areas of all over the world thousands of years ago and how to deal with breech deliveries and um, shoulder dystocia. Um, likewise, chess was developed by the Chinese to as a simulation for war and how you could move the different troops in different ways. So it's not anything that's new. And even in my ancient days at medical school, we had um, catheter models or cannulation models and things like that, which is all simulation, as is communication. Um, but it was this sort of advent of the big Simman 3Gs and the stands and the, the different man mannequins that were being used in much more immersive environments to recreate this sort of whole room and this whole way of engaging in simulation. So, um, so it was great. So we set up the simulation, the simulation center already existed at Guy's and we had set up the new one at St. Thomas's and that was built and we sort of got all the kit into it and really started developing courses, developing things around debriefing, teaching people how to run these courses. And there's a lot of money being pump primed into simulation at the time as well from the London Deanery. So there was a sort of, there was, there was money to be had to help develop stuff, which was great. And also we were starting to really explore human factors in a way that hadn't been discussed that much in healthcare prior to that. So it was very soon after the Liam Donaldson report from 2008, which was sort of promoting simulation in order, in order to improve patient safety. It was relatively soon after the Martin Bromley and Elaine Bromley case, um, which listeners may or may not be aware of, but it's worth linking to in the show notes, if not about, um, it's a very seminal case about patient safety. Um, and it's actually been used to inspire quite a lot of patient safety training and full patient simulation and things like that. Um, and actually things were really developing across the pond as well in America. So a lot of it was starting to become much more professionalized in the US. There was a lot more literature coming out about it. So people like David Gabber, who's the godfather of simulation and wrote the sort of original definition of simulation being a technique, not a technology um, and things like that, you know, all came out. That was sort of published 2004 through to 2008, 2009. And at the same time, there was this big group developing simulation in Miami with Barry Essenberg, and they were starting to do a lot of the big reviews into simulation. So actually, it was a real time when it was becoming much more academic, um, professionalized. And so it was really great to be in there at that point and to get really stuck in. Um, and then I went back to clinical training and I was like, oh, God, this is quite hardcore. Uh, what? Um, and I was just very lucky. Um, the funding came up for a PhD in simulation. Um, based at King's under a team of people who I really respected and really wanted to work with. And so I then had to go to my training program director and ask him if I could leave training again, having only been back for about four months um, and, uh, and left and did a PhD in simulation, which I managed to extend through various things like having children and medical issues and what else? Um, so yeah, so I was sort of out of training again, but still working in A&E. A&E is great because you can do locums, you can jump in and out. There's no patient continuity. You know, there's no clinics or theatres to get into. Um, so I was out of training again, and then I eventually came back. And my one warning to people who take a lot of time out of training is the colleges like to change the way they do things. So all the rules had changed, exams had changed. Uh, so I had to catch up on all of that. So I had to do about six years worth of portfolios in 18 months. And I had to go back and do a couple of jobs that didn't exist when I first set out my training, which I now needed to CCT. And I had to do four sets of exams that were still in existence at that time. Um, but eventually I got to the end and, um, and I managed to CCT in emergency medicine. And I got offered the senior clinical lecturer post at Queen Mary's working in emergency medicine MSCs, which was great. 
And I was combining that with some work also teaching the master's in clinical education, which I got roped into doing as being a PhD student. It's part of your duties as being a PhD student is to get involved in university life, teaching, marking, um, examining, all those sorts of things. So I've been doing that as well for several years by then. Um, And now here we are, 2023, and I've been a consultant for three and a bit years, and I've been a lecturer for that same amount of time and managed to take on more jobs and trying slowly to get rid of some as well. I think it's quite funny listening to you there because so many of the things along that journey you've just described are really common to nearly every guest we've had on the podcast so far. Certainly the idea of this luck aspect and being in the right place at the right time. Um, and it always makes me laugh because I never quite believe it. And I don't I, th- I don't know what Oliver thinks, but I always think, is it really luck or or is it actually the kind of person you are? And I think actually deep down what you've told us in that journey there is a lot of this is down to you and the kind of person you are that you've ended up there. It's not just about luck. Um, but I think it's been really lovely to hear that story and, and your passion for simulation comes through um, straight away. And I wondered whether... Were you, were you passionate about simulation before that first opportunity came up or was it an opportunity that seemed like a vaguely good idea that then sparked your interest? I was, um, very good question. I was working in a job. I'd been, when was it? It was 2009. So I'd been working in an e for five years by then. I had failed exams. So I'd had to retake exams. It got more and more expensive every time you retake your exam. Um, I had taken a sidestep um and actually had to go back and do medical i had to do a general medical job in order to get my reg post as well um and then i'd gone back in but i'd been acting as an a and e reg on and off for about four years and i was just tired i needed a break so i went seeking an opportunity and that's when i saw the simulation fellowship but um I look back now with absolute embarrassment. I wouldn't have got the simulation fellowship job if anybody else had gone for it. I think I was the only person interviewed because the questions they asked me, I didn't know the answers. I didn't, you know, I was completely winging it at the time. They could see I was in, I could talk, I was engaged, I liked teaching, but my knowledge of simulation and other things was just non-existent. Um, and it's embarrassingly so when I reflect on it, but it's about confidence and about willingness to learn and to get stuck in. And I started in the simulation center. I was the only full-time member of staff. You know, we had part-time consultants running it. We had a part-time administrator and that was it. And it was setting everything up from scratch, which is now, you know, just within that trust, it's got multiple full-time members of staff and, you know, whatever, but I was doing everything, which is, I feel so lucky because I not only had to service the mannequins and clear out the gunk because nobody had emptied the tubes in them for weeks since it was last used for a random course. I had to run the mannequin. I had to do the voice. I had to change the obs. I then had to go in and debrief. I had to start the day off. I had to set that up. I had to make sure the room was working. I then had to do the evaluations afterwards. You know, I had to recruit. I had to train the new people. So I was doing every single element of it. And there was literally times when you're on the phone trying to be the person they've called whilst also they're going, the patient's died, they're not responding. You're trying to do the voice at the same time and you're trying to make the obs change at the right time and watch and take notes so that you can debrief it afterwards. Um, it was challenging, but it was so much fun because there was very few of us and we were just, so we were learning together. And I think the one thing I'd say is I had an amazing mentor who was really dedicated a lot of time to helping me develop my skills, especially around debriefing. And then also gave me a lot of trust and a lot of space in order to develop the other things. And something I've really learned along the way is I like working for people who trust me 
people who leave me to get on with it. We're quite autonomous people as medics. You know, that's often, I think, when you look at the difference between being a doctor and being somebody else in the healthcare profession, I think the one thing that often sets us apart is that desire for autonomy, that desire to actually lead and to make those decisions. Um, and so I think I like people who respect that in me and allow me to do that because I think I perform better. I think what you were saying about the um, the the having to juggle the multiple roles when you're running sim definitely uh, has been uh, days of when I've been running a sim course and you have to play all of the parts and uh, run around and try and keep it calm for the for the candidates or the learners so that they they don't see your stress um, to add to theirs. What um, you mentioned all the different elements that go into running a sim day and that kind of thing. What what do you find the most rewarding part of it? Is it the designing a simulation? Is it a, is it debriefing? What do you like about it? I think it depends on the course. I think now I like troubleshooting and I like helping people to improve and to improve their experience. I was just debriefing somebody who did it. He's running an amazing course um, for trauma. And I was just debriefing him today, having watched his nine hour course for the first time a couple of weeks ago. And we spent three hours debriefing the whole course. But he's so excited about what he can do and he's got all these ideas and he's done escape rooms and he's done baton relay simulations and things where you go back and redo it again he didn't but he never heard of Kolb's learning cycle because he's not done um any education any pedagogy um and things like that so actually he was like oh so there's a sort of theory behind what I'm doing and I'm like yes and actually you're doing this and you're getting from you know you're actually going to the concrete experimentation stage which not many people do they're sort of in the active stage and they go through the different parts so that's really um interesting I think it's important to have done all of it so you understand all the elements and why the different bits are important. So I think things I've reflected on even just today is the fact that if you haven't used a scenario template, actually, your other faculty failed to set up the scenario well because it hasn't got all the right kicks. They put on the key things that they think are really important for that scenario, but they forgot to add in whether the patient was dressed, whether the patient had a pelvic binder on, you know, what they were attached to already. So those elements, I think that's important. Um, and I like that. But I, I think I was really passionate about debriefing for a long time. I think that was really interesting because that is where the majority of the learning comes from. And I think the big problem we had with this big swell of um, financial investment in simulation was everybody bought loads of kit and everybody had all these rooms, but people weren't able to use it to maximize it. And I was always like, there's no point using a full patient simulator mannequin to teach cannulation. You know, if there's something you can teach on a part task trainer or on a much more skills based session or using actors, then you should do that. It's actually cheaper. It's a better use of resources. Um, so I like that bit about maximizing the space and how you're going to use it appropriately. And um, one of my passions within that is interprofessional education and using it for that element. But I think the debriefing is actually when you really open people's eyes into the benefits of debriefing and into facilitated conversations and about giving the power back to the people in the group, letting the learning come from the group. And how do you develop people as debriefers? I think that's when it becomes really interesting. Um, and that's where some of my early work came from. So like the diamond debrief, we were trying to help people develop. Um, and we, we needed more faculty and we're like, how can we help them? And there's no guidance. And there's there was advocacy and inquiry coming out from America, but that was really long and quite complicated ways of approaching things. It was quite different approach in the UK to what they do in the US. 
And actually, if you wanted to learn that properly, you had to spend $4,000 in five days learning it in Boston, which not many people in the UK system can afford to do. Um, we don't get that sort of study leave budget. <laughs> um, and there's a lot more that's come out since then. So now there are many other different ways of debriefing different models that can be used um, and that's really developed which is great and actually allows people to choose from this sort of smorgasbord of options and that's what pearls really uncovers encourages for instance it's like what are you going to use you're going to use a bit of plus delta you're going to use a bit of diamond you're going to use a bit of adversary inquiry and actually as the day goes on or as the expertise of your debriefers changes throughout the day you can use different models um so i think for me that's where the really interesting bit was how do you maximize the learning how do you actually maximize the opportunity the space you've got the people you've got so they're leaving with something that makes a change down the line i think that very much resonates with my relatively limited experience of of helping with simulation but i I certainly think that that debriefing can be really really rewarding because i think you see such big improve i think you can see such a big improvement and some of the learning can be really quite transformative in a way that most other teaching doesn't give you in such a short period of time i can picture the sometimes when you show learners back something that's happened and the look on their face and the almost disbelief um that that happened in the way that it actually did and and how you then see that change them during even during the day I think is is really quite amazing so I can really see why that that really is your favorite part and I guess building on that therefore why why is simulation such an important tool for us in healthcare professionals education in medical education oh that's a big question um if I can just jump back to what you said previously about that moment of realization um there's a really nice concept called um it's called threshold concepts And it's the idea of you walk through a door almost. And once you've walked through that door, you can't ever imagine life without having seen what's on the other side of the door. You know, your life changes forever from that point onwards. And it's that sudden realisation, oh, that's how this is meant to work, or that's how that feels, or that's what that experience is. And I think people really see that happening in simulation through the debrief. And I think that really allows them to sort of, they have these aha moments. That's how they describe it. It's people called Mayer and Land. Um, They've written several papers in it sort of back in the early um early 21st century and um and i think that's really important i love that bit about simulation and when you see that spark and that change in people and that's what makes it so rewarding and even if you only get two of those in the whole day or one person has it you're like oh my god did you see how they've just gone away with this new perspective and this new understanding and i think that builds into why simulation is so can be so transformational if it's used in the right way is because it's an opportunity to bring different professions together and try and get them to work in their real life situation. So I'm a big fan of not putting people into role play. I want them to be themselves, play themselves. The only things I caveat I have with that is sometimes you have to give them, you might give them a little bit more permission. So final year medical students or nursing students, you might say, okay, you're a fully qualified doctor, you're a fully qualified nurse, you can give IVs or you can prescribe, you know, just that one step up above. Or if you're doing a course for IMTs, you can say you're the med reg now. So actually you have to make that decision and you get every step up one level. But I don't want people to go and play a completely different profession because then they ham it up or they take on these sort of personas um, and therefore we perpetuate myths about how people are and they go, well, that's what I see whenever I work with so-and-so and it's like, mm, you're not getting that natural reaction. So for me, simulation is about that ability to really get the natural reactions and the natural interactions and as nervous as people might be when they first go in and 
I think they are less so now often because they're much more exposed to it, certainly within medical training, but nursing, not so much, depends on where they train and other healthcare professionals. Um, they soon forget about the cameras after a few minutes. If you've got a good setup, if you've got a good voice for the patient and they're able to interact with it, they, they get immersed and they get immersed into that situation. And then you see their natural and actual characteristics coming out in the way that they work and the way they work with other people and their inability to make decisions or their amazing ability to lead or whatever else it is. I think one of the sad things for me, certainly where I've seen simulation happening more recently, but maybe it's different where you are, which would be great, is we've in the UK, we seem to have moved away from showing people the recordings. So when simulation was first brought in, we'd always replay the recordings to the whole group so people would be able to see their own scenario. But as time gets tight, often that gets cut and we just do the debrief and we don't show people back any of their own scenario. Um, and it's a tricky one. It can be really punitive if it's used in the wrong way. So it's like, I'm going to highlight this really bad bit of behavior. Let's all look at it now. Weren't they a naughty boy? You know, and that's a really bad way to use a video. But if you can use it to create a learning point, to give people insight into the way they're behaving, the way they're interacting, even the way that they're standing in the corner with their arms crossed, looking really disinterested and how hard that is for the rest of the team, then actually they can go away and cogitate and reflect on it, even if you don't discuss it. So one thing I used to do, I'd be like, well, let's just choose a moment. You guys tell me a minute between one and 10 and we'll just start the video there. And then you just play the video randomly from that point. Fingers crossed it's not going to be something that was really, really terrible. Um, and you wait and you watch the room and you see how the people who are in there are reacting. And then you stop it or you ask them to say when they want to stop it and there's something they want to discuss. Or when you see a clear thing happening, you go, right, oh, look at that closed loop communication. Let's talk about that. Or... How could we have done that a bit more differently? But it shows that you're not using it in that punitive style, which is quite nice because it's not like I chose we are going to show moment X. Um, so I think that's somewhere we could go back to. And the other plan I've always had and never managed to do, which I always, I don't know, maybe somebody else is managing it, is actually to be able to give people a USB or these days we could upload it to a cloud of their own scenarios and they could go away and watch it in their own time. They could watch it with a colleague. They could watch it with their educational supervisor or their tutor or whoever it was and actually watch their scenario and dissect their own performance, which you can't do in a debrief by concentrating just on the one person because that wouldn't be appropriate. The big challenge with that is actually you're then giving them somebody else's scenario as well because if you've got multiple people in there, then they're taking that away and how they guarantee you're not going to show that, expose the other person. Is everybody happy? So you get all these confidentiality issues and things that come with it. But I think that would be a really way, good way of actually helping people to learn for themselves as well beyond what they get. Because often people, I think, sometimes they feel a bit hard done by in the debrief. They're like, but I want to know more about me rather than these general concepts. And how did I do? And what was my performance like? Especially those sort of, um, you know, that's what quite a lot of medics are driven in that way. And you know, <laughs> a lot of other people are like, I don't want to know, you know, I don't want to know about me. No, thank you. But, you know, um, yeah. So it depends on who your audience is. Amazing. And there's, I think, as you were mentioning about how the sort of, people immersing themselves into a scenario when I'm instructing and you see someone and they're holding the hand of the mannequin you know that they've properly like bought into that moment and um uh, or like stroking their hair of their well the wigs at my center are particularly bad and but they're they're like brushing the patient's hair or whatever and it um you just know that they're really in there and and then those end up becoming such a fulfilling um, debrief because they've 
really engaged with it they've um and then there's so much to talk about but yeah it sounds like there's a I think that being able to watch your own back your own performance back would be such an interesting experience we had to do it at medical school as part of our communications training we were given a recording from a consultation and we were expected to go and reflect on it and dissect it and it wasn't it wasn't done um in it wasn't done in front of the whole group uh there was sort of a live debrief after that but then you were given the cd to go and dissect a bit further yourself which i i found really useful Um, what i was thinking about while you were just talking about that and the opportunity to look back is um so in GP training, our um, we do a lot of watching back our own consultations, and you don't know, like yes, there's 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 the benefit you get from going through it with a third party, but it's amazing what you pick up in your own. And I I watched back one of mine today where I was really convinced in the moment I did a really good job of consulting with a patient and his wife, um, and the interaction between them. And I watched it back today, and I basically never look at her, and. I had no awareness of that in the moment, but that's been quite a, like, it's amazing how just seeing that for myself, I don't need someone else to tell me that. I just needed to see it for myself. And I think there's definitely power in that kind of self-directed aspect there. And I think you can really, I think we are reflective learners these days. You know, everybody has to do reflective work in different ways. I supervise medical students and God, I worry about how much they have to do sometimes in terms of that. You know, it's such a sort of core part. And NMC revalidation is all about reflective logs as well and across all the professions. I think there's, I think this is another bit where simulation really comes into its own and debriefing. This is something that came out of my research as well, is actually by debriefing, we are teaching people how to reflect. We're teaching people how to observe. We're teaching them how to dissect what they're seeing. So I don't know how both of you debrief, but I always encourage people not to talk to the people who are in the room first. The people who the people who've just been in the scenario are stressed, they're exhausted, their adrenaline's running, whatever else it might be. They come into the room for the debrief and I get them to sit down and then I get everybody else in the room to tell me what they saw. And I get the people who are in the simulation to then correct it if that's not right or to add in the bits. And I think it's helping people to a sort of then think about what they did. It's helping people to observe what other people are doing. Um, it's both those sides of things. And it's then creating this sort of group reflection. You're drawing everybody into it. Um, and then when you start dissecting it down and you start saying, oh, well, I saw you do this or I was wondering why this happened or can you talk me through your reasoning behind that? Then you're sort of getting that reflection in there. And you're actually what you're doing is you're teaching people how to reflect how to observe and how to learn. And so I think you can then give them their videos to go away and they'll carry on doing that because you've given them those tools in the first place and that way of thinking about it. And so the one leads on to the other naturally. And GP training is really good at doing it because you have to. But actually, as you say, you can probably learn just as much by not having somebody else watch it. And you're like, yes, I know. Yes, I know. Yes, I know. And you want to hide your head in your hands going, you don't have to tell me. I've seen that already. What's new? (laughs) Um, And how do you balance that out? I don't know. You mentioned already uh, sort of a little bit about your research and that you sort of undertook a PhD in simulation. What was, what, do you, mind, do, it. <laughs> it, it, do you mind exploring that a little bit more, telling us more about what you, what you were looking into and what you found? Yeah. So one of the things that really frustrated me when I did my f- simulation teaching initially was the superficiality of the post-course West questionnaires you didn't really learn what people were learning. You know, it was like, 
I mean, we quickly got rid of the questions going, how was the lunch? Well, we're not going to change the lunch, so don't even ask that question in the first place. It's pointless, you know. And um, and then we ask, you know, there's all sorts of rating scales sometimes, and it's like, how good are you at communication? And how good are you at this? And everybody's like, oh, I'm 7 out of 10, I'm 7 out of 10. And then afterwards, they're like, I'm 8 out of 10, I'm 8 out of 10. And I'm always like, actually, afterwards, you should be asking them, now rate yourself on where you think you were before you came in and where you've come to having been here, you know, and actually, how do you get that reflection on it to actually then go back and go, okay, yeah, maybe I wasn't quite so good at that. And you can do that. You can do it with, and you can try and pair up pre and post course questionnaires with codes whilst keeping them anonymous, which is a challenge. So you get into those issues. It's probably a lot easier now that we're digital and you can probably link things much better that we couldn't do 10, 15 years ago. Um, and then you have those questions going, what did you learn today? Or what are you going to take away from the simulation? And again, we always had to do those at the time because we didn't, you know, we didn't have the technology set up quite so well and in order to get people to do their sort of delayed reflection. And again, what I like to do now is I'd rather send out a post-course questionnaire a week later or two weeks later and say, you need to complete this. And then I'll send you a certificate for attendance once you've completed it and returned it to me. Um, but you've actually had time to go away and think about it and how do you sort of then s situate what you learned in the simulation in your clinical practice, which again comes back to sort of completing Kolb's cycle to a degree and having that sort of concrete experience, active experimentation elements. Um, so I wanted to really understand, but I also knew, I could see that people were having these aha moments. I could see that people were taking a lot more away of it when you had the informal conversations back on the shop floor. They'd be like, yeah, but I learned this, or I hadn't seen that before, or I was thinking about this, having been in the simulation. And I was like, how do we understand that? How do we try and harness that and get to the bottom of it? So my my PhD was what's called phenomenological research. So it's about understanding the lived experience that somebody's had um, and trying to get to the bottom of that and understand it from their perspective and what they've been through um, and to try and really explore those themes. So... Um, I was lucky I had a sort of group already set because we set up this final year nursing medics and midwifery course at KCL. So we were putting over 700 people through it a year. Um, so a sort of ripe and ready group of people there that I could sort of pick upon or ask to um, engage in my research. And, um, and so I was like, well, I'll focus on them and I'll try and understand what their experience is. And then actually, when you start looking into trying to do qualitative research, I was like, I'm going to get completely different things if I talk to the nurses to if I talk to the midwives to if I talk to the doctors. So then I just focused on the medics because those are the ones I could relate to better and I had good access to through the medical school. Um, and so my research was really trying to understand the lived experience of the students in the simulation and what was it that they really took away from it and how did that then affect their ongoing learning. And so I managed to do... Um, managed to do either one-to-one -one interviews or focus groups with them and then as a reward they got to have an extra simulation session um, and they could come back so we actually had some spare spaces because of the numbers of nurses and midwives versus doctors and the way it all worked out I had I think I had 25 or 30 35 spare spaces so I could then recruited that many people they all had a chat to me then they came back and did another simulation and then I talked to them a couple of weeks again after that second simulation so then I was trying to see how they're view had changed, what had happened, how they could reflect on that experience as well. And then I followed them up a year later, roughly, um, when they'd started as junior doctor. And so trying to see if it translated into their practice as well, and if it had any effect at that point. 
Um, my brain was slightly fried. I had twins in the middle of that. So I was like, okay, uh, let's try and uh, have this conversation again and get myself back into that space. But um, it's not a bad thing for qualitative research to have a bit of time out, you know, and time to think about things. So that's what the research was based on. That's what it sort of came from. Um, I guess you want to know what I found. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, I found that it's really hard to do a social science PhD when you've come from a natural science, like we based, you know, from medicine. Yep. Um, I think that's the biggest thing I learned. And as much as I enjoyed my master's in clinical education, I actually got the PhD funding before I did my master's dissertation. And so being the medic in me, I was like, well, there's no point doing a master's dissertation if I'm going to do a PhD dissertation. And despite several people saying, I really think you should do your master's dissertation first, you might learn quite a lot through the process, which you could apply to your PhD. Um, I put my blinkers on and just carried on and did the PhD instead. So I would highly recommend, I would make it imperative for anybody to do a master's dissertation before they did a PhD. Um, and I wouldn't let anybody onto a PhD program without having done one. <laughs> Um, in retrospect um, but there we go and um, I think what I did was I did a lot of I had a lot of data I had 18 hours of interviews and focus groups so I did a lot of coding and working out what the key themes were and pulling those together and what was interesting um, and then what did I want to look at and explore and what was nice is because it was this three-stage um, research I could take back the themes that I got from the first part and ask them, then build those into the questions the second time round. And I could say, well, some of your colleagues have said they found X. Would you agree with that or not? You know, and can you tell me a bit more about this? So you could then sort of validate the themes that were coming through and you could get the contra arguments to them as well. So a lot of it's really important in qualitative research to actually get the negatives and actually the people who say, no, I don't agree with that at all. Because you're not saying this is 100% given for everybody. You're saying this is what some people tell me. Um, so the key results came around, I sort of, at the end, I sort of put them into, um, key findings, which were about gaining confidence, um, about learning to observe and about realism. So it was those sort of three elements. So in terms of gaining confidence, it was really simple. It was really just actually doing things. It was that experiential learning that was so important for them, you know, being in an anaphylaxis scenario. And then when I became a junior doctor, I saw one and actually I knew what to do and I'd had that experience already and I could draw on it or recognising that I could delegate or I could work with an interprofessional team that I knew what how I should be working and how I should be doing things differently. And that was really key. Actually, we all need to gain confidence. And as much as I berated confidence ratings earlier on in this podcast, it was nice to see that this did actually come through and it translated over time, but people were able to sort of transfer it into their clinical work. And actually we saw signs of it. So people were actually getting, they said, I had the confidence. I saw a patient deteriorating on the ward and I actually started as a medical student and I started doing an ABC and put some oxygen on while asking the nurse to go and call the foundation year doctor or the reg. Whereas before the simulation, I would have just run a mile and called for help. You know, so there was that active bit, people actively speaking up um, and they, so they could demonstrate the way their confidence has changed and improved and how it allowed them to get more involved in clinical care and to potentially affect patient safety as well. Um, as you and all your listeners will know, this education is so multifaceted, you can never say that there's complete cause and effect from any one element because we're all being educated in so many ways continuously. But that was really nice. So they could sort of 
put it as part of their armory, really, of different ways that they could learn and prepare and gain their confidence. And that reduced their stress in the transition period to becoming a doctor because they felt that they'd had some of those experiences, those lived experiences. Um, and there's quite a lot of literature out there about the stress of that transition from being a medical student to a doctor. So actually, if you can then do like they have in some places and build whole simulated days or weeks when you're acting up and you're having all those experiences and doing on calls, even if it's a simulated patient, then you're building that confidence and that repartee that you can then draw on when you go into clinical practice. So that was the first one. Um, The second one, which we've already talked a little bit about, is that thing about learning to observe. It's learning how to watch. It's learning what to watch. But the things I liked about it that I found really interesting was actually learning to watch the other professions. We too often watch our own profession. You know, you said, Rob, that you're a GP and you'll sit in a consultation and you'll watch the GP, but actually you should be watching maybe the practice nurse who's there as well, or you should be watching the patients and the way they're reacting or whatever it might be in the same way, you know, and actually how how are those other people working within that situation? and therefore trying to understand the whole MDT um, and how it's all working. So actually they started to learn to observe differently, to understand the interprofessional team, to say, oh, that's why the doctor's able to do that because the nurse did that. And actually look at the way that's facilitated by this healthcare assistant and look at how the physio came in here. And so that was really, really key that as medical students, especially you spend so much of your time on the periphery, you're there, you're watching, you're not doing. and we all know, we've all been in that situation where you're stood at the back and it's, you're like, oh, really? I've got to watch somebody else do this and what's going on? And i just thinking about where I was last night or where I'm going to be tomorrow or the exam or something else. What am I gaining from this? And actually, if you can then help people refocus and think about what they can gain from learn, from observing, then you start maximising their learning in a different way and they can take different things from it. And even if they play a game in their head and go, today I'm going to mainly watch the ward clock. Today I'm mainly going to watch the healthcare assistant. Today I'm going to mainly watch the junior doctor or the senior doctor or whatever and actually think about it in that way, then you can change your um, way of that. So it's really about new powers of observation, new powers of understanding clinical practice, um, taking those skills from the debrief. And some of them even talked about debriefing with each other when they were paired up on placements. And there's like, then I went away and debriefed with my colleague about what we'd seen and what we'd watched. Um, and so therefore you're becoming more of an active learner and not only that the people who then engage in simulation afterwards they're starting to learn that they've got a lot to learn by not being the one in the room but actually just by being the observing the observing participants then actually you can gain as much if not more than that than doing the simulation itself and that's a good realization that actually when they've got that um, so that's good and you're making people take responsibility for their own learning through it and then the third thing was realism. And we always talk, you know, people are like, oh, it felt so real. This was really real. And it was trying to understand what did they mean by real? What did real do to them? What is real? You know, there's a lot of different things. People talk about authenticity. They talk about realism. They talk about experience. Um, and so I sort of tried to get into a bit more of the nuance of it. Um, and... I think there's, if I think about, I'm just sort of looking back on my research to help, but there's a sort of, there's the semantic side of it, they talk about it, which is this sort of immersion bit. And it's the things that actually you need to have the monitor with a SATS probe going beep, 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 
And as it goes lower and lower, your heart rate goes up and your adrenaline starts pumping. But if you do the scenario, and I saw one last week without the SATs probe, noises, everybody was really relaxed, even though the SATs were 72%. But I promise you, if they'd heard that beep going down, the whole thing would have been different. Um, I think it's really important people wear uniforms. Actually, the difference of wearing uniforms in a simulation, that you're in your role and you understand the people around you's roles, whereas if you're all in your home clothes then it's a bit more relaxed, it's a bit more jokey, you're not able to interact in the same way. If it's people you don't know, you can't quite remember what their job is when it's interprofessional and maybe you don't know each other so well. Um, so I think that sort of bit, things like having to call for help on the telephone and waiting for somebody to come rather than the response always being there straight away. Um, I think that's really, really key. Um, and so learning about their own roles. Um, so that's important. I think there's another thing about timeframes and actually having to wait for things to work and I think often we rush simulations too much and we do these time gaps and it's like all right 10 minutes is up what are you going to do now and it's like oh and actually the hardest bit is that waiting isn't it the hardest thing is a peri-arrest call not an arrest call it's like right I'm watching the patient are they going to go up or they're going to go down I'm going to give them a bit of adrenaline I'm going to give them a bit of fluid I'm going to give whatever it is let's just wait and see you know and us old people are at the back going, yeah, I'll be fine. Let's not worry too much about it. And the other people are sort of sitting on the edge going, oh, my God, what's going to happen? And, you know, I think that bit of actually having that autonomy, that chance to wait and see what the real time like is, how do you feel that time? What else should you be thinking about and doing that? I think that's really, really important. And that's part of the realism, actually. It's about making sure that's built in. And then I think what's really interesting is how um, – people's sort of emotions um, and their beliefs really come out into it as well. And actually the pressure people feel within a simulation, the pressure to keep the patient alive. That bit, again, we talked about earlier is like, I don't want this patient to die. You know, this patient's life's in my hands. There's quite a lot of interesting literature about should you let patients die in a scenario or not? Um, you know, and that's quite, can be quite a tricky one. I think it's less so now. I think we've got all used to it a bit more maybe. Um, but actually how important that anxiety inducing was and how I was able to cope, or I wasn't able to cope with the adrenaline, how I was able to cope in those situations. So I think that's really interesting as well. And actually there's, there's quite a lot of research about stress and pressure and anxiety and what that does to performance. And there's I'm trying to remember the name, is it Bell Dodson's curve or something like that? And there's a sort of a point which you reach your maximum performance with a certain amount of pressure, but if the pressure goes too high, then it falls off the edge. And actually, I've been talking to pre-hospital people and they do a lot of stress inoculation because pre-hospital medicine can be so stressful when you've got a blunt um, traumatic cardiac arrest. And, you know, what are you going to do? And are you going to do a thoracotomy or not? And really high stake things that are literally, well, this is the only way they're going to live. But actually, is that even appropriate? And how do you how do you get the skills so that they're so rote that actually you can then manage the other things around you in the situation because you're in the middle of a motorway and somebody's asking you if they can open it and where the helicopter can land and it's raining and goodness knows what else. So I think that's where Sim really does bring up that anxiety and that feeling of needing to act and do things and learning how to manage that and how to settle it down. So it never loses its place, no matter how senior you are. You know, these HEMS doctors who've been practicing for years will still put themselves through the simulations and still challenge themselves and still see where they're at and so I think it's got place for everybody so I guess those are the three sort of key things that came out of the research I think that's so interesting and I think uh, 
how all the simulation experience I've had both as an instructor but also as a learner has all been sort of um full on um like every patient is for full escalation every patient is for um for that for sort of all measures we must keep them alive kind of thing and I think actually particularly as a medical trainee lots of our decision making and decision making as a medical registrar is about understanding those boundaries and actually I think it'll be I know there's work going into um lots of sort of palliative care sim about when but lots of that decision's already been made but I think it'll be interesting about how we start to simulate and create that environment where actually this patient is not a level three candidate they're not for ITU and how do we manage that and manage that situation with the staff whether it's how do you de-escalate from a um a, me- a medical emergency call or a peri-arrest call when it's not appropriate and actually I think that would be a really interesting next step as both a candidate and an instructor for simulation. Yeah I've done some of those are good I've done some of the palliative care ones I've some done some of the ITU outreach ones are quite good as well and it's like actually I don't think this patient's appropriate for ITU and I've talked about ceiling of care and we've had called the relatives in and things like that and you can do them really nicely if you bring actors in as the relatives as well, you know, and you can then lead it into a communication scenario and having those conversations in the most appropriate place. We do it in peds as well. You know, actually, it's that bit about having the conversation with the parents as well as with the child and trying to bring those people into it. But yeah, I think you're right. It's, I think there's a lot of place for that. And actually, just because you're in a simulated room and you've got all the bells and whistles just saying, no, let's just stop. Let's just reassess. It'd be interesting. I think it's interesting post-COVID, isn't it? And I don't know what jobs either of you were doing during COVID and the real challenges, especially a lot of the more junior doctors had managing those patients on the wards who weren't being escalated in those families in those situations. So it might be quite raw thing to do still for some, but it might be cathartic as well. Yeah, I, I know uh, as an instructor, some of the sessions that are with um, junior doctors have been actually there's a lot of things that people need to debrief from their own real clinical experiences that actually end up coming up in a in a simulation debrief and there's a lot of things that people from their their real life clinical practice and they need to debrief and come up in these sessions and I think that's been it brought to a head particularly from the pandemic and the current stresses and everything and actually those sessions are becoming more and more important I think for learning but also just being able to debrief from those experiences. And there's a challenge there, isn't it, that it doesn't become just a grievance session. It doesn't become the somebody's just debriefing their one bad experience. How do you keep actually on, on message for your learning for that day? So actually, what are your support mechanisms? Where can you redirect people to? How can you bring that in, but then move on nicely and then come back to it, which I think is really challenging. Um, but I think there is a lot of that coming out. And I think it's, it is it is a space for it. I don't know. One of the things I was on this feedback I was doing today is they never did what I would call the basic sim rules at the beginning and I don't know if everybody does that um you work relatively locally to me so I think you do but um at least Ollie but you know that's sort of what goes on tour stays on tour you know I want you to be able to talk about things in this room and you can go away afterwards and maybe you can talk about the scenario you did but you don't want you to talk about other people's performances and the other things they brought to the table because you have to have that respect for the learners and otherwise we're not going to get these honest conversations um, but likewise, you have to be able to say that's a really difficult time you've been through and we need more time to talk about this. So I think we need to move on with the scenarios for today and for every, 
the general learning, but let's maybe you and I can set up a time to talk about it later, or I can direct you, or you, we can talk about it at the break or something like that, and then redirect people to help after that. I think just building on that idea generally kind of leads into the question I wanted to ask as well, because I think one of the reflections I've had is so think about as a learner I had a simulation as a medical as a finally a medical student another one as an f1 doctor and another one as an f2 doctor um and I think that I definitely by the time I was an f2 doctor there were additional things I got out of those sessions not necessarily because the scenarios got a lot more complicated they were more complicated but actually because we all brought slightly more from our real clinical life there and I think that really builds on what you were just saying and I wondered whether there are any other differences or or reflections you've got on on running simulation for more junior learners medical students versus when they are with those more senior people all the way up to as you alluded to senior consultants yeah it's really challenging I think I always think your faculty have to vaguely reflect your learners um so if you've got interprofessional learners you have to have interprofessional faculty but I also see I don't think it's appropriate for me to be the only medical debriefer on a foundation year one course because it is so many years since I did the equivalent of foundation year one because it didn't even exist you know that I can't relate direct to those experiences so so I'd much rather have a medical education fellow there who's maybe only three or four years away from now or even an f2 who I can draw on and say, well, what do you think about this? And how do you deal with this at the moment? Because I don't do those general medical on calls or I don't do cardiac arrest. So I think it's really important that you actually have debriefers who can reflect and understand the audience and can give them helpful pointers so that they can say, no, it's not like that. Or have you thought about these people or where do you go into it? The advantage you do have sometimes, so when I ran this big course for seven, seven, eight hundred medical nursing midwifery students is that you debrief so much with other people that you then learn what their patter is. And actually, I could then debrief pretty well the nurses and the midwives and I could get I knew exactly what the systems were in the hospital from working with the medical education fellows who helped and everything else like that. So you can learn that if you're doing something enough, but not many of us have that that space and that ability to be constantly doing the same course quite so much to be in there. What was the other half of your question, Rob? I don't feel like I've answered it completely. Oh, as you get more, yes, that's really tricky. Um, we were running a course for the wards um, and I can't remember whether it was a particular subgroup, I think, because we ran them for like haematology and nephrology and various other people. Um, and anyway, there was a medical consultant came along to the course, which was great. So we sent him in as the senior but it was a cardiac arrest scenario because it was the last one of the day that I think, and actually he was so out of his comfort zone. He's like, I don't go to the cardiac arrest calls any longer. You know, I haven't been to a cardiac arrest call for five years because the med reg does it. You know, that is beyond, that's just not something I have to go to any longer. It's not that I'm not interested in it. It's just the job role's changed. And he felt so exposed and like, because he couldn't do a great job of it. And he's like, I used to be able to do this, you know, but I'm just not up to date. And actually, that was a really good lesson of making, putting him in a really tricky position where he was exposed, potentially be made a fool of. And I don't think people took it in that way, but that's how he felt. And so I've been really conscious of that ever since is actually, why are you sending people in? And how do you engage them and keep them engaged? We're trying to set up a course for consultants at the moment. And 
how as consultants do you run a course for consultants without being like, we're the ones who know everything and you're the ones who know nothing, which isn't true at all, because it's about everybody just learning and going through SOPs and things together. And so one of the things we're bandying around is actually we sort of split into two groups and one group runs a scenario for the other group and then you switch over and do it vice versa the other way around. Um, so actually everybody's taking time to be faculty per se, you know, and leading the scenario and having the inside scoop and bringing their SOPs and their knowledge on that area. And then everybody's having a chance of being the candidates, but you're making it more of an even playing field. And that might work. I don't know. We haven't done that yet. So I think that's one way you can think about doing it. I think sometimes you do need to separate people out. So actually you don't want to necessarily expose all of your learners to all of the other grades if they're not comfortable in that position and actually you can do more detriment than good. Um, we really learned that with the students actually, the undergraduates, because we started putting second year nursing students in with sort of third year medical students and actually second year nursing students have been on the wards for a year and a half and are really great at clinical and the medical students have just arrived on the wards and haven't got a clue what's going on and it's like you're not on a par with each other and is brilliant you know the nurses led it and took it away and absolutely ran it but actually then it didn't help the medical students and they didn't learn very much from it and then we went back and we thought about it and actually what we did is we started running near peer courses so we actually did third or fourth year medical students fourth year medical students with second year medical students and so the second year medical students did the sort of putting the obs machine on and things like that and the fourth year helped to guide them and then had somebody who was work they were working with but they was sort of had the more senior knowledge and they could start building just their own clinical confidence because it was the first time they were put in that scenario at all. And then by the time you move them into fifth year simulation, they were very happy to go in and do it with the nurses because they felt more comfortable in that modality and in who they are and how it might work. And actually they learned how much the nurses knew and that they should just listen to them and they would guide them and teach them. But it took them a while to get to that point. And so we actually had to learn that the hard way through running a few of these things and going, oh, this isn't quite right. And you must never be afraid to go, okay, thanks for coming, guys. That was great. Maybe we need to go away and rethink it. And let's just rechange it up and do things differently next time. And that's why piloting is so important. If you're doing a sim course, you need to pilot it. See how the scenarios work. See what happens in reality. See how the groups work together and be really upfront. Go, this is a pilot. We've never run it before. You know, it might all go swimmingly. It might all be a disaster. So just bear with us. But the day's free or here's free lunch vouchers or come and learn and see what it is and help us develop it together. And I think that's a really key part of developing sim. Great. Um, to kind of wrap up the episode you have given us so many so much to think about i wonder if as lots of our listeners are both going to experience simulation as learners but also maybe clinical teaching fellows or f faculty on simulation are there from your experience what would you say your maybe one or two of your top tips for getting the most out of simulation as a learner but also as if you're new to simulation as an instructor, what 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 are the best things that you can do to improve their educational experience? Learners a harder one for me to answer probably because I'm not in the simulations myself that much, um, and it's all it still gets my heart rate going if I am sent in because you're like, oh my god, okay, I'm expected to perform, and I think it's really important actually as educators to go in every so often um, and to still do it. And here's a fun one for everybody to try. If you want to do a demo scenario, so a lot of people would have done ALS or 
APLS or something like that and you do the demo scenarios. When I did my APLS training, they actually didn't tell the ICs, the instructor candidates, what was going to be in the scenario. And they sent you out the room and then they asked the candidates to suggest what the injuries were going to be. It was a trauma simulation. And then we came in and we had to do it de novo. We had to find the injuries and they'd made up the injuries and set up the mannequin while we weren't in the room as the instructor candidates. And that was brilliant because it showed that actually, could we still apply it and go through it? So I think it's really good to have a go and still be a, a simulator, to be a learner in simulation or be part of it. I think the important thing as a learner is to have your eyes open, which sounds stupid, but it's look at everybody, look at everything, think about what you can learn and what you can gain from it, you know, what else is to take away. And if you're bored of watching the scenario, you know, and you're like, oh, I know how to do anaphylaxis and this, that and the other. Okay, well, learn how to debrief. What are the questions the debriefers are asking? What's what's made something a good debrief? What's made something a not so good debrief? Why have you engaged with these people? What else have you got out of that experience? You know, how can you add that to your reflection? And we can learn as much from poor examples as we can from good examples. And I learn how I don't want to be as a consultant from watching people as I've gone through the system. And I've learned how I do want to be from watching other people. And understanding the motivation behind people or why they're acting like that is really interesting. Um, so I think that's what I'd say as a learner, try and get onto into professional courses as well and take that opportunity. Don't sit, I always mix people up, they hate it. Don't sit next door to your own kind. Don't sit next door to your mates, sit next door to the other people because that's when you have the side conversations and go, what do you think about that? Or why are they doing this? And that's when you can ask them and you can learn about the other professions. Um, so maximise your opportunities in that way. Um, it's going to be really weird. There's going to be people moving around simulation debrief rooms everywhere trying to sit next door to different people or probably not. Um as a faculty member, I think there are some things to take away. Top tip, interviews, anything else like that. Don't say there's two, don't say there's three, because you'll never remember to say the right number of things afterwards. Um, <laughs> so I think one thing is constructive alignment. What are your learning objectives? And what do you really want to get out of this session? Okay, how is the best way to deliver to deliver that? If it isn't using a full patient simulation in a whole room and full team then teach it the other way that's better and cheaper and more easily accessible or if you've only got your room for a day and you really want to maximize it well what can I do in here that I can't do anywhere else you know and how do I really maximize this opportunity and this time so I think that's really key I think interprofessional faculty for interprofessional simulation is really really important because they have to have an equal voice coming from within the debriefers and I think my one top tip for debriefing is debrief the debrief so go through the debrief afterwards get somebody else to watch you and to tell you how you did think about using a tool such as osad or dash if you want to to help um, dissect it down or if you're feeling really brave then take a recording of the debrief and try and transcribe out your part okay this is really fascinating if you start transcribing your questions you'll realize they're not questions, but they're paragraphs. Why did I lose the group? Because I asked a question and then I qualified it. And then I added something else and then I added something else. How long did I actually spend on silence waiting for the group to answer? Mm, three seconds, maybe I should try 15, 30, a minute. They'll break, they'll talk eventually. You know, actually, how can I phrase things differently? So it's a question rather than a statement. How can I get my students to engage with me? How can I expose my own vulnerability? 
you know, if you can expose your own vulnerability about what you've learned or a bad experience you've had or a time that something hasn't quite worked, then other people are more likely to share that back with you. Sometimes you have to make it up. But, you know, it's close to the truth. It's somebody else's truth. But, you know, it helps other people to then engage and to come through things with you in that way. So I think that's a really key bit. It's how do you develop your own debriefing skills and how do you develop each other? And actually doing it as a team is really important. How can I get better as a debriefer? That's amazing. So much to think about. Um, thank you so much for joining us this uh, for this episode. I've learned a huge amount, um, which I'm going to take away. Um, and I'm sure our um, listeners will have as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's always a pleasure and it's always great to try and hopefully enthuse more simulation educators and um it's a great modality and it's so much fun to be had i can talk for days on it as you can tell so anytime that was a really great discussion um i feel so energized and um inspired about um simulation and what i can take forward into my own um practice and i think soon will be the time first time in a long time that I'm going to be the the learner in the simulation setting so I'll be um interested to see how that goes yeah I definitely I think I'm still in a state of shock that we managed to talk um for a whole hour about simulation and up until this point uh that we haven't actually mentioned an aeroplane I thought we were going to get close when uh, Libby started talking about pilots but in fact no so um, I think we've done amazingly well there and I really enjoyed it. It's been a long time since um, I've done anything really simulation based now and it's made me sort of go, maybe it's something I should get back into. Yeah, I think there's a whole a whole um, breadth of things that can be applied to not just those, as Libby mentioned, not just those acute um, situations that we maybe traditionally think of. So thank you once again to our amazing guest, Dr. Libby Thomas, for sharing such in-depth knowledge on this subject. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. Finally, thank you to the entire TASME podcast team, the wider TASME committee, as well as Amlunya, who designed our theme music. Thank you for listening to TASME Time and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.